the scripture readings for today come from the book of Nehemiah. Two separate passages. They're printed in your bulletin. I don't think the words will be on the screen, so if you want to follow along and you have a bulletin, you can find it there. First passage is chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. The second portion is in chapter 8, verses 2 through 6. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Let's begin with some prayer. Heavenly Fathers, we just sang, we know that you and you alone have the words of life. And we come to you day by day, hour by hour, gathered together week by week, because we know that we have nowhere else to go. So we come to you and ask that you would give us life. We seek life and we seek recognition in so many other things, God. But during this time, please quiet them in our hearts and press them aside that we might behold the beauty of you and your Son, through your word. Amen. Amen. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. The 18th of April in 75, there's hardly a man who's now alive who remembers that famous day and year. He said to his friend, If the British march by land or sea from town tonight, hang a lantern in the belfry arch of the old north church as a signal light. One if by land and two if by sea, and I and the opposite shore will be ready to rise and sound the alarm to every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to be on. Then he said, Good night. And with muffled oar, rowed across to the Charlestown shore. 
Longfellow's poem, of which we would just rehearse maybe two of the 14 stanzas, Longfellow's poem has embossed into the American psyche this midnight ride of Paul Revere. This ordinary man, in ordinary circumstances, finds himself accomplishing ordinary things, extraordinary things, by doing ordinary means. On the 18th of April in 75, 1775, Paul Revere is out riding. And he's alerting the countryside of these 700 redcoats of these British soldiers who are going to come. And because the Sons of Liberty, who are not a big fan of George III, King George III, what they've been doing is stashing guns and uh, powder and shot through various villages throughout the countryside. And the British are marching to take them away. So Paul Revere is riding and riding and he's riding through the night to alert all of the countryside of what is happening. Then 500 Minutemen, men who he had awakened through his midnight ride, come and encounter the English in Lexington. And it's there that you have the most famous shot ever fired. The shot heard around the world. And now the revolution is in full swing. And here we are, several hundred years later, still feasting on the freedoms that we have because they fought to recognize that we deserve them because we are all made in the image of God. Men who were once deep in their slumber now called upon in a moment's notice to be a part of something that is far greater than themselves. And to make sacrifices, not only for themselves, but for others, even other people that they have not yet met. Redemption, we are at these same crossroads. We have an opportunity before us that is both difficult, but it can be defining as who we are as a church. For this evening... The elders are going to present an opportunity for this church that will both galvanize us together and through ordinary means, we will be able to accomplish something that is truly extraordinary. So to put all of this in context, we're going to be looking at the portions of Nehemiah and his efforts to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. So first, we're going to be looking at the rebuilding of the walls. Why is this significant? Who really cares? So we're going to be looking at the rebuilding of the walls that leads to the reading of God's Word that then leads to a revival among God's people. So we're going to be looking at the rebuilding of the walls, the reading of God's Word, and then the revival that then comes forth. So let's put it in context of what's going on with Nehemiah. Remember, the people of God have been put into a Babylonian captivity for 70 years. They had sinned against God, and God had the same punishment on them that he had upon the, the first generation coming out of Egypt. You sin against me? You don't follow my laws? You don't want to be with me? That's fine. You will die, and you will not be in the promised land. And that's what's happened. First generation out of Egypt, they died out of, outside of the promised land. This generation that was engrossed in deep, deep sin died outside of the promised land. But God hears their cries. 
And he delivers them through this King Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire. And then Nehemiah and some of the others actually travel further east to now the Medo-Persian Empire, the Susa, and further away, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles further away from the Promised Land. Many others went back to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel in 539 is when that happened. And first thing they do, by God's providence, God delivers them out of Babylonian captivity. And the first thing they do, build themselves amazing houses. That's how they celebrate. And then once they get that done, they get some more prophets who say, what are you guys doing? Let's finish the temple. And they go, oh, you're right. The temple. Let's finish the temple. And then you fast forward about another hundred years, about 90, 95 years. And then we come to Nehemiah. And they got still got plush houses, temples looking awesome, but now the walls around the city are still in shambles, they're still in ruin. So go to chapter one of Nehemiah. It says the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kisev, in the twelfth year, when I was in the citadel of Susa. Remember, he's now in uh the Middle Persian capital of Susa. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Jerusalem with some men, and I questioned him about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now you have to ask yourself, what is bringing Nehemiah to mourn and to fast over such things? Isn't it enough that he is the cupbearer to the king? Isn't it enough that the people of God are still the people of God and they're back in Jerusalem, they're back in the city of David, they're back there on the Mount of Zion? Aren't they not still the people of God with or without the walls? Ah, but Nehemiah realizes something. He realizes that the sheep of God are vulnerable. My friends, they're vulnerable without these walls. Nothing to protect them or to give them a permanence within that city. So he does the only thing a man can do or a woman can do in that condition. He comes before God and he prays. He says, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse six, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be opened and let and hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He's not praying for himself. He's praying for the people of God, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Redemption. This is the genesis. This is the beginning even of our church. Of two men getting together. Two families getting together and praying. And praying and fasting and asking. God is this your will. And four different places. And now 
finishing up our fourth year after launch. We've been constantly praying and praying and praying, starting at a Presbyterian church and going to a middle school and going to a parking lot of someone's industrial building and then here in a luxurious hotel. Just praying and praying and praying and fasting and asking God, is this your will? Even now, over these several months, we again have been pausing and praying and fasting before moving forward. We've been praying, as Nehemiah was, about the greatness of God and the goodness of God who keeps His covenant of love, even though we don't deserve it, because we sin. We as a church, we sin, and not only as as a church, but ourselves, we personally, we sin, and we sin the sin within our own families as well. So we have the same prayer of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah... He has a pretty good gig, let's be honest. He's the cupbearer to the king, who's the most powerful man in the whole world. And he goes before him. Chapter 2, And the king asked me, that is Nehemiah, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of heart. And he said, I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. That's always a good way to respond, whatever the king says. May the king live forever, and then you go on. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it that you want? And I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered again, praying first and then acting, praying and then acting. I prayed to the God of heaven and then I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I might rebuild it. Now, Nehemiah, he is basically on the other side of the known world far, far from the Mediterranean shores that that Israel has its waves lapping up upon. But he could have remained numb. He could have just stood by and let other people worry about the condition of the city. But rather than using this distance as an excuse, he has his affection for the people as the made reason to draw near and to share the burden with them. So he goes and he follows, which probably along the Fertile Crescent then, coming back down from the north into Jerusalem. And he comes and he sees the condition of the people, and it's quite lamentable. You go through it and you read it. The valley gate is sunk. The dung gate, it stinks. The fountain gate, it's dry. The king's pool, it's filled in. There's no hope for the people whatsoever. And he's he's going around. They don't really know who he is or what's going on, but he's there kind of stealthily going in and about, looking at the walls, looking at the condition of the city. And then he gathers the people together. And then then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in? He's talking to Jerusalem. Nehemiah is. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God that had been upon me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. 
And they started, and they began this good work. Now go back and think about it. Why are the walls so important? They are the people of God, are they not? They are the people of God with or without the walls. The same thing could be said about a church without a building. And it's clear that this, these walls do not have the significance of the temple, the place where in the first temple the presence of God would, would dwell. We're not making that connection. The church as a whole is the temple. We as individuals are the temple where the Spirit of God dwells. But you will recall, even in the first pages, even in the first pages, God is declaring that it is good, it is good, it is good, that the temporal things of this garden and even the temporal things of this world are declared as being good. In the same way, these walls for the city of Jerusalem are a prudential gift of God for His people. It gives them uh, protection. It gives them permanence. It gives them a, a further sense of identity even amongst themselves and who they are in relation to the world around them. So are they the people of God without these walls and without these gates? Of course. Of course they are. And even if they're in exile, they're the people of God. But... In the same way, are we as a church without a building? Are we still the people of God? Absolutely. Are we still the church? Absolutely. But in the same way that they are looking for these walls, prudentially by God's grace, we could be looking for a building. Of course we are the people of God. We're the people of God whether we, we meet in catacombs. We're the people of God whether we meet in a middle school cafeteria with horrible acoustics. We're uh, uh, the people of God as we meet in a, in a gravel parking lot. We're the people of God as we meet here in this hotel. That's not going to be changed. But God laid it upon the heart of Nehemiah, just as he has laid it upon the heart of so many of you within this room. To use our temporal means to, to build a and to have a temporal building that will be used, be used to make an impact for so many in the eternal story of God. So let's be again clear about what is happening. Yes, it is God's provision for Nehemiah to become, uh, to come and to build these walls, but it doesn't happen easily. God doesn't go back to Genesis 1 and then just, you know, bam! Speak these walls into existence, you know. Nehemiah is not out there naming it and claiming it. That's not happening. He's not claiming these walls, expecting someone else to come and do it. You know, they're not, uh, they're not having seed. They, they, they seed a little ball and then they get in return of a massive wall, a hundred times the size. You know, that's not what they're doing. How is God providing the wall for them? Go to chapter 3. Go to chapter 3. You'll see it's done through hard work. Chapter 3. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests, what did they do? They went to work. They went to work and they rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated as, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. 
But it's not just them alone, it's even the, the men of Jerusalem, or of Jericho, who are then now coming up and helping them. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. So do you think God is going to provide a building in any other way? No. They'll be disillusioned about this. If God is going to provide a building, it's going to be through hard work. And it's going to be through an incredible amount of hard work. But in addition to this, this hard work that they are pressing through, there's, there's uh, a difficulty that seems to swarm among, around them like this, like a cloud of gnats. You go to the next chapter. Okay, they're doing great. They're doing fantastic. Get to the next chapter. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Samballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and with the army of Samaria, well, now we're talking about something that's impressive. He said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can these stones, can they bring these stones back to life from this heap of rubble, burned as they are? My friends, early progress is often met with difficulty. You see this in relationships. Early progress is met with difficulty. In marriage, it's like probably the best example. Uh, early progress and great zeal and great love is then followed by difficulty when you realize, ah, I married a sinner. Not only that, I realize I'm a far greater sinner than I ever, ever could have thought possible. Even in new business ventures, early success is often met with with. More difficulty when you begin to realize, oh no, I, I don't I just have to stay busy. No, I actually, I have to make money at this as well. Even in church plants, the great zeal is then often met with difficulty within the second year. But what do they do? They don't give in. Through day and through night, they worked and they stood watch. And because... It was the will of God, and because it was His provision of God, doesn't mean that it was going to be easy. Just, just in general, it's good for us to be reminded, do hard things. Do hard things. That, that's countercultural of everything we're ever told. Do hard things. Read a book a week. Read through the Bible multiple times in a year. Do hard things. If, if you're overweight and your knees hurt, run a marathon. Do Hard things. And you'll see this in verse chapter 4, verse 16. From that day on, half of my men did their work, while the other half were equipped with spears and shields, bows and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all of the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried the materials did their work with one hand and held the weapon in the other hand. Each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. Make no doubt about it. What the elders will be proposing tonight will be audacious. And without any doubt, it will be difficult. But if we carry forward like these men, a sword in one hand, a trowel in the other, we have no doubt that we will persevere and that we will accomplish this. 
We will see it through to the end. So here we are. Walls are being built. And they're being built at an extravagant cost. Now the people are proud of what they have. And they finally they have protection. Good. Fantastic. You get a sticker. But now you begin to see why the walls are more valuable than we could have ever, ever imagined. Turn a couple pages and go to chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate, which was then completed. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law which Moses, the Lord... Uh, the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And he read aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. And all of the people listened attentively to the book of the law. So here is Ezra the priest, who is now coming before the people of God and reading to them the law of God. Once the walls had been completed. These, these temporal walls that didn't really change their, their, who they were. It came at a great cost of, um, for, yes, of course, it came at a great cost. And it didn't actually make them any holier, did they? No, they just, they didn't do that. They didn't, these walls didn't bring them any closer to God, no. But what did they do? They helped facilitate the reading and the preaching of God's Word. And that, my friend, is worth standing. What they would do, they would stand guard. In the, the men who were working in the city, we didn't have time to look at this text. The men who were working, they would work in the walls during the day, and then they would sleep in the city, and they would stay awake at night and guard against Sanballat and the other armies who were trying to evade, because they know once they get walls, the city is safe. We better assail them now once they, before they get walls, because once they do, we won't be able to. So the people of God, what they would do is stand guard at night and work during the day. Guard at night, work during the day. A sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. Likewise, if we enter into this building for any other reason but to have the Word of God go forth, to have the preaching of God go forth, we labor in vain. We labor in vain. But we know as the word of God, as it goes forth, it does, it does not return void. It goes and it shoots out and it pierces the hearts of from whom the Spirit is working. So stay in chapter 8 and look at verse 5 here. Ezra opened the book and all of the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces. Verse 9. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing all of the people said to them, This day is holy to the Lord our God. Do not mourn or weep. Read this. For all of the people who had 
had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. My friends, this is why you build walls. So that the word may go forth and that hearts may be changed. And this is why the elders are going to present to you this opportunity that we might fight and scrape and do all that we can to procure this building. So that the word of God might go forth unhindered, unhinged, unfettered. And that hearts might be changed. That Christ crucified would be the anthem ringing through those halls, not only for our generation, but for the next And we can have a place to raise up and to train men and women and families to go and plant churches throughout this city and throughout this country. That even our children would be trained up to go and to be missionaries and bring forth the Word of God to the far remote edges of this world. Even if it means that they pay with their own blood. So all of the effort and all of the risk and all of the sacrifice is worth it when Christ and Christ is the alone is the one whom is glorified. Not only in our lives, but in a multitude of lives, not only in our church, but in a multitude of church plans. Not only in this land, but even out to the most remote ends of the earth that Christ may be glorified above all things. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, as your people, seek your will to be done, not only in our lives, but even through this church, God. And as we come before you this evening and later on to worship you, God, we ask that your will will be done. God, we ask that you... And your Son would be glorified above all things in our hearts and in our minds with all of our affections. God, let us glorify your Son. We pray this in his glorious name. Amen. Amen.